This is an ABC podcast. This is Big Ideas. I'm Paul Barclay. Alarm bells rang earlier this year when China and the Solomon Islands signed a security agreement, with fears a permanent military base may follow. It's no surprise then that Pacific nations are one of the big winners in the recent federal budget. $900 million in aid over four years, including a boost to Australian federal police operations in the Solomons. All of which is designed to shore up our standing in the region as China's influence grows. So what are the risks for Australia of the Solomon's agreement with China? This discussion was recorded in May at the Lowy Institute and hosted by Jonathan Pryke, Director of the Pacific Islands Program. The speakers are Graham Smith and James Batley, both from the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the ANU. James is a distinguished policy fellow who joined the university after a long diplomatic career including a posting as Australia's High Commissioner to the Solomons and a two-year appointment to lead the Regional Assistance Mission to the Solomons, known by its acronym RAMSI. Graham Smith is a fellow in the Department of Pacific Affairs. He teaches the politics of China. The other guest from Honiara is Dorothy Wickham, a veteran Pacific journalist and broadcaster. Host Jonathan Pryke asks her about the feeling in the Solomons about the new security agreement with China. I think there's a sense of people are fed up with it now and they're tired and they want to move on with the subject. But as you know, the overseas media is still very much covering this issue. So the discussion is still ongoing. You see people commenting on uh, Prime Minister Sogovare's comments on the floor of Parliament in regards to this uh, security uh, treaty. So it's an ongoing subject. James, this story has obviously been big news in Australia. What's got people so animated? I think it's a a genuinely significant and important development in terms of the way that Australia has always looked out into its immediate region. It's always been a really important element of Australian policy or perhaps a better word to use is it's been an ongoing anxiety of successive Australian governments about the possibility of hostile powers or potentially hostile powers establishing themselves in countries and territories that border on Australia. That's an anxiety that goes back, in fact, to before Australia became a country, uh, to before federation. So I think this agreement, even though it's as we, I guess we should agree, it's not necessarily an agreement to establish a base, but it may provide grounds for that. It seems to me, the other thing that seems to me is that even though China has established some form of security cooperation with a number of countries in the Pacific over the past decade or so, this agreement seems to me to be qualitatively different in terms of its scope, its open-ended nature. So I think the Australian government, I think its concern is is well-founded. You raise that there are unique elements of this deal, such as, you know, the, the policing arrangements and the agreements for on the request of Solomon Islands government for Chinese forces to come and protect Chinese citizens and, and assets. But does this logically lead us to a base? I mean, it, does, it seems like there, it, it's still a mental stretch to, to see that that's the next step. 
Uh, in and of itself, not necessarily. There's a couple of questions there, though. One is what might a base look like? And in, in some respects, this base discussion is a bit misleading because it's. I, I think the broader issue is access, not necessarily a base. But I think also we need to see this agreement in the broader context of a pattern of Chinese behaviour over the last few years. It's that pattern of behaviour that leads me and I think leads a lot of other people to conclude the intention of this agreement is not simply on the part of China to help Solomon Islands domestically with its own security issues, that there is a broader geostrategic agenda at work and indeed one that is designed to uh, undermine what we might think of as Western interests in this part of the world. I do think there has been a debate in um, both government circles and, and academic circles, etc., about what exactly China's intentions are in this part of the world. But I think this agreement has given us, a, those of us that don't have access to confidential government information, a much better steer about, about what China might be up to. Graham, you and I have been talking about China's interest in the Pacific for the better part of a decade, and you know, I know you've been looking at it for even longer than that. It's hard to say on the first question of what their ambitions are in the South Pacific, because we're, uh, unlike Solomon's, the Chinese government doesn't leak much, so we're unlikely to see a document uh, framing out exactly what their ambitions are. And it is a long way from, you know, their shipping lanes and things of commercial interest to them. So, you know, compared to Djibouti, compared to Reem in uh, Cambodia, it's not the top of their list for places to build a base. And I, I absolutely agree with James' scepticism there. But as he says, it's about access. It's, you know, about can you dock your ships there? Can you have the sort of support you need to uh, be a global navy? Because that's the ambition is eventually they want a navy that has similar prestige to that of the United States. And you don't have that sort of prestige if you don't, uh, you know, have places at the very least rather than bases. The levers for a long time in the Pacific have been companies, generally state-owned companies, um, with the exception of Huawei, which is a nominally private company. But these state-linked companies are, are probably the ones to watch if you're looking at something approaching that red line of a base. And, and as James alluded to, this whole question of red lines is a little bit dubious because, of, as Obama discovered, you know, drawing a red line and then not acting on it is uh, catastrophic for uh, your credibility as a global power. But in this case, if you look at the uh, actors who are leading China's push in the Pacific, they're the same ones you see in Djibouti. They're the same companies you see in Cambodia. It's these big Chinese companies such as CCECC, China Harbour, and something approaching a base would be great for them because it's work. It's a commercial contract and it's something that they have people on the ground to, uh, to promote. So, you know, whereas they might not be briefed in on national security meetings and so forth, they know very well what the intent is from the top and they know responding to signals makes them more likely to get the nod on projects. Dorothy, I wanted to come back to you here. There's clearly been a Chinese presence in Solomon Islands long before 2019, but what does the Chinese presence look like today in Solomon Islands and how are the Chinese viewed in, in Honiara? I know that's a loaded question because there are a lot of varying perspectives, but how, how do people talk to you about China and, and Solomons? There's a general consensus that they've moved in and they moved in fast and big. Their aid, as you know, here is a very uh, physical, you can actually see and touch. And for the last 40 years, I think we've, we've not had 
much uh, big infrastructure projects, especially if you, you're looking at um, donor assistance, apart from uh, New Zealand's big, huge uh, work in the Western province with the International Airport, and also the road from uh, Munda to Noro, which are two big, huge projects that people in the rural area can see and uh, actually say, yes, this is aid coming from a particular country. And I think this is where Australia, I wouldn't use the term fail, but I think the misunderstanding uh, of a lot of average Solomon Islanders is that aid has to look like a concrete building, has to be a bridge, has to be a wharf. I think Australian aid, as uh, we all know, has focused a lot on governance as the work with Ramsey has always been in the background, strengthening government institutions, especially in terms of our finance, debt collecting, taxation, policing. It's the kind of aid that uh, if you talk to an average Solomon Elder, they wonder where all the money goes. And also, you know, that term boomerang aid, that's also one that is always referred to when they talk about Australian aid. So I think it's also a language thing and also an understanding of how our aid works. We have that issue in the Solomons that the Solomon Islanders don't appreciate how much we get out of Australia. I think, but one of the biggest pluses for Australia over the last few years is the seasonal workers scheme. That ordinary Solomon Islanders feel the effect, they see it, they see the benefits in their neighbours, somebody in their village, somebody they're related to. So that that's a, a support that Australia, I think, should use and leverage because I think that's where I have said uh, social interaction between our countries uh, needs to be enhanced, I think. We, we've always taken for granted Australia's presence in this country, and I think that needs to be worked on. And maybe, um, uh, as I've said before, narratives need to change. And it's something that uh, the Australian government and people will need to relook and maybe adjust. James, coming back to you here, talk about Australian aid. You've, of course, had a lot to do with Australian aid over, over many years in Solomons. What do you think about Dorothy's assessment here? Should Australia be recalibrating, doing a bit more in that space? Or should we also be concerned about the longer term here, about uh, you know, the white elephant projects that do, you know, we do see littered around in the entire region? I think Dorothy certainly put her finger on a broader issue in the, in the relationship between Solomon Islands and Australia. I think for a very long time it's been very narrowly based on government-to-government relations. There's not a lot of trade between Solomon Islands in Australia, so there isn't a strong business lobby that's got a stake in the relationship. There's a tiny Solomon Islands community in Australia, so again, the people-to-people links are not nearly as strong as they could be. Now, with the labour mobility, that is building a much stronger foundation for the relationship. It's broadening that relationship out. So I think looking in the medium and longer term, that's going to be a really a really important part of, of relations. If we're thinking about the aid program specifically, it's clear that Australia is already making moves to broaden the focus of its work. I think I saw a, an announcement just in the last few days of Australia being part of a group of donors involved in the major Bina Harbour development in Malaita. Of course, Australia has been uh, helping with the Tino River Hydro project as well. These are major national projects. I do think, Dorothy, the uh, prob- the Japanese government might be feeling a bit um, that you, you've neglected their big contribution in the infrastructure area over the years. And I, I think... Perhaps in the past, Australia has seen that um, 
countries like Japan or organisations like the Asian Development Bank have looked after the infrastructure side of development, whereas Australia has really focused on strengthening government institutions. I think for Australia, it's always been very important to support government institutions in Solomon Islands. Having said that, I think Australia has learned a lot of lessons over the course of many years in understanding that just strengthening central government institutions based in Honiara doesn't necessarily have a kind of trickle-out impact on the lives of Solomon Islanders, the 80% of Solomon Islanders that are living uh, in villages right across the country. I think that's one of the real take-home messages of the Ramsey period. You know, for all the good that Ramsey did, I think, in restoring law and order and restoring government finances. But that impact at the grassroots level, I think, is something that I know that Australian policymakers and planners wrestle with that question and are asking themselves, you know, how do we have that broader impact on the lives of of ordinary Solomon Islanders? So to sum all that up, yes, I think we can see some evolution in the way Australia is is thinking about these approaches uh, in Solomon's. Dorothy, there is one, as James alluded to, there is one missing pillar here with Australia's relationship in Solomon Islands, and that is the commercial one. But of course, China has extremely strong commercial ties in, in Solomon Islands. How does that look on the ground? That is a, an area that really needs to be addressed by the government and also its donor partners. I think that the trade between Solomon Islands and Australia is a difficult one for a country like us. Uh, meeting the requirements for exports into Australia, it's quite difficult. And also volume. I think volume is, is one key. And um, access to the to markets to getting uh, wherever it is located to a port. And as you know, we only have two international ports here, seaports, which is Noro and Honiara. And then the rest of the country has to feed into these two ports. So it's 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 a difficult thing, I think. Uh, but it's one that's maybe something that can be dus- discussed. I mean, if you have the right people sitting in the right place, talking and facilitating um, trade, I think it, it can be done. But of course, we sit here in Somalia and we're always seeing announcement of uh, taro women put it to Australia cassava to um, New Zealand and it, it's a bitter pill to swallow because there's, as you know, every Solomon Islander is a, is a landowner, owns land. And I think that's the biggest uh, resource that we have that we can claim how to utilize that and benefit from it. I think that's that's the key. Somebody um, said to me, I think it was the former CEO of the uh, Development Bank of Solomon Islands. He said, the willingness to work, the work ethic to work, if it, you're talking agriculture, fisheries, we have it here in the Solomons, but it's also the financial education that is very much lacking on the ground. And I think those are the areas that maybe Australia could look at and help facilitate through Australian aid-funded projects like Strong Business. They've done good work in that regard over the last few years that Strong Business has been established in, in the Solomons. I agree that uh, Australia has focused on the nuts and bolts, which is the governance issues, but I always use this argument, how can you um, educate Solomon Islanders on what it means to have a good government system, a good governance, when uh, education is lacking on the ground? You know? And I, that's why I keep saying over and over again in every platform that, that I can use it, that education is our key. Health is the next one. This is where one area where maybe Australia can boost its support. We really need funding pushing 100%, 110% 
education, I think that would be the key. I mean, as you know, education comes, everything else follows. You don't really have to work too hard to talk uh, issues of crime prevention, issues of governance, corruption. When you have an educated society who understands these issues, if you look at Fiji, I think Fiji is a good example of that. On average, uh, education is free for them, which means on average, you have a pretty well-educated society who is aware and understands issues of governance. I really feel strongly that um, if Australia and New Zealand are to help here, and also that could be part of this people-to-people enhancing of relationships between um, Australia and the Solomons is through education as well. I do think this is one of the challenges that Australia faces because there are so many demands and expectations. Australia has very significant aid programs in both education and health in, in Solomon Islands, alongside the work in the economic side, strong in the government, alongside the, uh, the security work, the policing support and general governance support. So, I mean, that is there. But as I say, I think there are so many demands that inevitably choices have to be made. We have Solomon Islands PhD students in Australia. Those are very expensive scholarships. Of course, they produce high-quality scholars, but then that's the trade-off, perhaps, at the primary education end of the equation. I mean, I just think governments on both sides need to keep talking about those issues to get the balance right, but it's, it's, not, it's not easy. Australia has a long history of cultivating ties with the Pacific in the form of development aid, natural disaster relief and efforts to strengthen governance and security. For 14 years, from 2003 until 2017, Australia was part of the Ramsey Mission, a coalition of 15 Pacific nations who worked in the Solomons at the request of its government to stop ethnic violence and offer development assistance. But China is also not a newcomer to the Pacific. China has steadily increased aid and business investment in the region And in 2019, the Solomons severed ties with Taiwan in favour of China, a powerful signal of Chinese influence. Clearly a lot more we can discuss on the aid front, but I do want to touch back, Graham, with you on China's commercial interests in Solomons. A helpful starting place is probably the Belt and Road Initiative and how they define that. So they have this thing called the Five Connectivities which covers a whole, well, basically five areas that they're looking to uh, exert influence in. And one of them actually is the shopkeepers. Um, It comes under people-to-people relations. And that's been a huge problem for them in the past. I mean, they had a report after the 2006 riots where they said, we've got to do something to stop these people leaving our shores because they're destroying China's reputation. They're actually talking about stopping them going to Solomon's at the Chinese border because their quality was too low and we shouldn't let them out of the country. And they're costing us so much because they cause all these riots. The um, agency, the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office, blamed them for the riots in 2006. Said, look, these guys brought it on themselves because they're such trash. Now, obviously, this group didn't really welcome the switch. Um, When I talked to them in 2009, they were very much, no, no, we're really happy for them to stay with Taiwan because if they switch, there'll be more competition, there'll be more Chinese businesses coming in, and it's going to be bad for our business, which is, of course, what has happened. So at the top level, you have these big companies. Um, CCECC is really leading the way in Solomons. They basically pitched the switch um, to Sogavari and his entourage. Um, you also have China Harbour, which is a really 
significant state-owned enterprise. So the thing about these companies is they're so big, they actually outrank the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So in terms of deciding what happens on the ground in Solomons, you would assume the ambassador has a leading role. Not really. He has to listen to these companies because they're more powerful than he is in a political sense, not just an economic sense. They are really the ones to watch in terms of what happens in the future in China. And then you have this other really interesting category, that what you might call the uh, ideas entrepreneurs like China Sam, who kind of pop up and are behind a lot of these MOUs and a lot of these you know, funny things that get leaked. China Sam kind of sounds like a joke because of the name, but if you look at their subsidiaries, they're exactly the kind of entities you would be looking to to build a base abroad. They are connected to companies that have the license to sell, for example, weapons abroad, which definitely isn't the case for, for many companies. So it, it's an interesting, if you like, melange of, of Chinese commercial actors. But the thing they have in common is they have skin in the game and they're looking to promote their own interests. And these days, because of the BRI, they're looking to align those interests with um, signals from the top. James, I'd like to zoom out again and focus again on the Australia-Solomon Islands relationship. Now, we talked about the aid, the aid side of things, which, of course, has been a really dominant part of this relationship. But I was hoping you could help us unpack some of the complicated history of Australia's engagement with Solomons in the last two decades. I was thinking back to when I went to Honiara as High Commissioner, which was quite a long time ago now, in, uh, in 1997. And I have to say, back then, I remember doing my rounds of uh, government departments in Canberra before I left for that posting. And there was really, I have to say at the time, very little knowledge and understanding about Solomon Islands. At that time, our aid program with Solomons was very small, something in the order of $12 million a year, I think. It was pretty much a, I think, a neglected relationship. I think it started to become, to come into focus over the course of the Bougainville crisis when we had, there was those spillover effects of Bougainville into Solomons and also Solomons became, a, in a sense, a, a backdoor for humanitarian supplies and for people to move in and out of Bougainville. And from a Canberra perspective, that's when Solomon started to come into focus. And it underlines one of the key interests that Australia has. It is that relationship between uh, Solomons and Bougainville and Papua New Guinea more generally, because, of course, that border between Papua New Guinea and Solomons is, a, is an artificial colonial creation. What really brought Solomons, of course, to attention in Canberra was the outbreak of the tensions called the ethnic tensions in, uh, I guess, 1999 through to 2003. This is the period where you saw the rise of armed militant factions based in Guadalcanal and, and, uh, and a response from Malaitan factions and really the disarming of the police force so that the state lost the monopoly on, uh, on violence and there was a serious breakdown in law and order and in the effectiveness of government. And, and this certainly grabbed the attention of the Australian government and, to cut a long story short, led to, to the start of Ramsey in 2003. I guess it took the Australian government quite a bit of internal thinking and debate 
to move into that very assertive, strong leadership position that it took in Ramsey. For a long time, Australia was trying to support the police in Solomons. It was trying to support uh, non-government organisations like the Red Cross to help manage the, this period of the tensions. But it was a real sea change in Australia's approach in the middle of 2003 when, when Ramsey uh, was deployed in response to a request from the, the Prime Minister at the time. Of course, that wasn't Australia by itself. It was Australia and other members of the Pacific Island Forum. The great bulk of personnel were Australians, whether that's military, police or civilians. And in the in a space of a very short period of time, you had hundreds of Australian personnel rotating in and out of Solomon Islands, interacting with, meeting with Solomon Islanders, working in all different parts of the country. And again, from a, from a Canberra point of view, quite quickly, Solomon's became a major government priority. The overall objective was, can we help to, firstly, to bring about peace between these warring factions, to disarm those militant groups, to restore law and order, but then to restore the, the functioning of the efficient and effective functioning of government. That's I think, addresses another significant Australian interest in Solomon Islands and in the Pacific Islands more broadly. I think Australia has always felt that instability or vulnerability or fragility, there's a range of words we might use, in the region does directly affect Australia's national interests. It does so because it means that the governments in the region themselves could be vulnerable to organised criminal groups, could be vulnerable to or don't have the capacity to respond to natural disasters, don't have the capacity to service their own populations in ways that would raise living standards and reduce disease, child mortality, all of that sort of thing. So I think that was certainly the focus of Australia's interest around uh, 2003. The Prime Minister at the time, John Howard, used to say one of, the, one of the justifications that he put forward in talking about Ramsey to the Australian Parliament was that if Solomon Islands did become a, a failed state at the time, then perhaps it could become a, a haven for international terrorists. I guess we need to think that this was in the context of the war on terror. It's only a short time after 9-11. But no one back in 2003 was thinking about China. It really wasn't part of the calculation. Of course, Solomon's at the time had relations with Taiwan and that, that contest between China and Taiwan had been simmering for a number of years in the Pacific. But, but that, it doesn't seem to me, was a real driver of Australian policy um, at the time. So I think, in a sense, Australia does feel a responsibility given that it is a rich developed country in a neighbourhood of poorer developing states and that in that sense it feels this responsibility to assist with development. But that also serves Australia's own national interests. It certainly does mean that there must be some really complicated emotions about Australia in Solomon Islands. I mean, Dorothy, what can you tell us? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Like, how, how is Australia viewed? I mean, I know there's varying opinions, but there must be a range of perspectives in the community. And are they at all different from views in Parliament? You're right in saying that Ramsey played a huge role in uh, giving access to Australians, to um, people in our rural areas and vice versa. People in our rural areas having personal contact, not only with Australians, the New Zealanders, the Fijians, the Tongans, 
every single forum island country member because of their postings into some of the most remote parts of the country. It was a special time. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of Somalis still maintain that those re- personal relationships they've had with uh, uh, Ramsey, whether it's military, police or consultants who came in and out of, of the Solomons during that period. I think where Australia basically dropped the ball was when they pulled out from Ramsey or closed it down, which uh, would be the right term, there was that sense of a gap left. It was funny because during that period of Ramsey, it wasn't always 100% a good relationship. There were times we'd had parliamentarians ranting in parliament about Australia and Australia pushing its power around here. And then uh, as we went towards closer to the time they were leaving, Solomon Alders didn't realize that the, the withdrawal was um, was done in such a way that you just started to see less and less of Australian police officers on the road and little posts in the rural areas started to close down and there were a lot of personal farewells between people who had become friends. And it just slowly wound itself down. I think I think the Ramsey exit was done very well. So well that Solomon Alders just didn't realize that it was up, you know, Ramsey was finished. And uh, <laughs> even though it, it, it was a long time, it, people felt like it was just yesterday, you know. But, but I think that's a, a lesson that maybe Australian can relook or uh, review and look back on and and try and rebuild this relationship. I think we've gone through a few weeks of us really scrutinizing and really looking at our relationship with Australia. I seem to notice on social media there's a slight tilt towards uh, Solomon Allen's being more appreciative of what Australia is doing. And you see it more coming out more in terms of um, when there's a post or there's a release on um, Solomon Allen's going out to work in Australia. And that's when you see Solomon Allen's actually acknowledge and say, yes, we have benefited from Australia's assistance, despite whatever it is, issues we have uh, with Australia as a long-term partner and a neighbour. And as you know, the unfortunate <laughs> use of the term backyard has been mm-hmm. taken totally out of context here now. Just over the last you know, 24 hours, it's just gone all over the place with the Prime Minister um, using, and using it in a rant in Parliament. The man at the centre of all of this is one who is prone to a good speech in Parliament. Uh, that is Prime Minister uh, Manasse Sogavare, who has been a dominant force in Solomon Islands politics for two decades. Graham, what did you make of the man and what do you think drove him to signing this deal? Look, uh, Dorothy and James both know Manasse much better than, uh, than I do, but obviously he's a very uh, charismatic, a very magnetic personality. He certainly uh, almost has a messianic presence about him and uh, a great self-confidence. A lot of his um, attraction to China was about the feeling that uh, Australia at times pushed them around, particularly with regards to Taiwan. Uh, That was sort of the first thing he nominated is that they had this policing agreement that they'd signed with Taiwan. They were about to send the police to Taiwan and Australia came in and said, no, no, that's, uh, that's not for Taiwan. That's our business. At least according to him, that's how it went. One thing I would like to note, and I'm sure um, the other two know this better, is you hear this suggestion that he's autocratic because China's in the picture. If you look at his previous three terms, autocratic is not new. <laughs> it, um, it pops up every time he's prime minister. So I don't know you can necessarily pin Sogavari's personality change, as it might seem to some people, on China. This seems to happen every time. James, you've probably had more to do with Sogavari over the years than any Australian official. What do you think makes him tick? I think I first came across him when um, he was the finance minister in the government in the late 1990s. 
But I think the Prime Minister is a very nationalistic man. He's extremely proud to lead his country. He can be a very intense person. You know, the sort of rhetoric that he uses in Parliament, I've had to say to a lot of people in Australia, you know, since this is characteristic of Prime Minister Solovari's style, so you need to listen to that sort of rhetoric or to read those words in that broader context. A lot of people have found it difficult to get close to him in a personal sense, so they find him quite guarded and with a a fairly closed or close circle of advisers around him. He's been Prime Minister four times, but he's also, he's lost power a number of times as well in motions of no confidence. He's clearly got enormous political skills. I mean, and he's the preeminent political leader, I think, of his generation, but perhaps not always capable of keeping everybody on the boat at the same time. Dorothy, you have written for The Guardian about your frustrations with the transparency of the Sogavare government. I mean, would you mind expanding on this point a bit? Like James said, this is not Sogavare as a result of China, and I totally agree with that. This is Sogavare, basically, and that, that's how he, he speaks, and that's his political style, you know, and mm-hmm. we are used to him. I, like James, first met him when he was a minister of finance, and I was just a you know, young cadet. And I traveled down to the border as part of the Western province delegation uh, in relation to some issue we had with the Bougainvilleans and Papua New Guinea, Taro and Choizol. But I remember him as a young minister, very much sure of, of what he wanted. And I, I think it frustrates him no end that even after all his years in parliament, he's unable to drive this whole development issue. I mean, he, he comes from a Choizol pretty remote province, which has so much difficulty with infrastructure and transportation, communication, everything that you, you could think of, but then so very close to, to Bougainville and PNG that has much better infrastructure and communication facilities. One thing about Sogovari, I think a lot of Solomon analysts tend to forget. He is only one person in a cabinet. He's the face. He's the face to this government. But he has very powerful movers and shakers behind him who hold together his numbers. And I, I think in all all the negativity that, uh, negativity that has been um, focused on him, we Solomonalists need to also take a look at the characters behind him and the reasons for the choices being made. I think we, we really need to look at his, his ministers and know their affiliations and uh, their leanings and what are the demands on them from their, from their voters. And I think, I think Sogvare leads a group of uh, people, you're talking the Malaita and the Gurukanal block, who have faced uh, a lot of issues in terms of development. The Western province block is a little different. As you know, the Western province is um, economically a, a little bit more self-reliant mm-hmm. than if you look to the other provinces. And I think the Gurukanal and the Malaita block are other strongholds behind him, including uh, the three members of parliament for Honiara, which... Um, also has positive and negative effects because that's when you have a lot of settlements located here in Honiara. And every single right we have, it's always been as a result of young people in, in the settlements who were you know, disillusioned with what they thought they could have if they came into town. And they left, they left without jobs, without education, and without any uh, much prospect. But like I said, over the last few years too, we've seen that change mindset because of the seasonal workers program. And I think uh, Sogavare... If you look at him as a leader, he's a very well-respected leader in his in his own province and his own constituency. 
that's the reason he's still there. Dorothy, you touched on so many issues. I would love to talk more about the riots. I mean, sure, the swap may have been a spark, but the underlying drivers are, are the, all the points you raised about youth unemployment, economic opportunity, inter-island tension, that all these issues are still so prevalent and so important to talk about in Solomon Islands. But we are, I'm afraid, running close to time. And I do want to come back to James to ask the question of where do we go from here? How will this change the way Australia engages with Solomon Islands? I do think one of the impacts of this agreement will be the trust between the Solomon's government and the Australian government will have been damaged. Nevertheless, it does seem that Prime Minister Sogavari was at pains to reassure Australia to say that you remain our our primary security partner. I, I think if there were to be a future security problem, Australia would be called on. But if China is called on at the same time, coordination between those groups could cause a real problem. That could be a real challenge for security planners. One of the underlying concerns is the purpose and the nature of policing in China is very different to um, what it is in Australia. The police are there to maintain social stability, which is a very different goal to um, to solving crime. They're, they're, they're pretty rubbish at solving crime. <laughs> they claim to be as safe as Switzerland. I've lived there for a number of years. It's not as safe as Switzerland. The police are uh, universally regarded with um, contempt there because their main thing is to keep a lid on social tensions. And so if for example, only they were called on, would Australia then have to come in and bail out the poor old Chinese police who, who find themselves um, you know, unable to uh, apply their methods or, or finding that their methods actually make things worse on the ground in Solomons? So there's all kinds of interesting hypotheticals there for us. Thanks, Graham. Dorothy, any, any last words to add? I'd like to give you a small snapshot of what we might face. I mean, just recently in, the, in this right, uh, Australia, of course, led in a very small contingent of um, um, Fijians and Papua New Guineans. And the policing in Papua New Guinea, as you know, is very different to how Solomon Islands uh, police conducts itself. And there were a few <laughs> small spots of trouble in the way they dealt with Solomon Islands. Mm. You saw it in social media, Solomon Islands. This is not Port Moresby. Don't come and push us around. Solomon Islands, are, in that regard, are very lucky with our police force, even though we complain about them a lot. But they're always very respectful of their relationship with the community. Even our rapid response unit gets hammered whenever they, they mishandle a situation. So I, I think if we were to get to that stage and if they were to bring in Chinese police officers under whatever arrangement it is, they're going to have a big PR problem because... Solomon Islands are more used to the Pacific style, which is Australia, New Zealand, regional assistance mission made sure it left that mark. So whoever's coming after that really, really needs to know how to handle this society. If not, it'll be an absolute mess. And it would be something that maybe in the end we'd be asking for Australia to come and clean up again after that, <laughs> Jonathan. There's also a language issue. In the middle of a Malay in Honiara, these poor Chinese police whose English is probably not that good, are they even going to understand what's going on? And, and they certainly won't have the language skills to talk things down and to, you know, de-escalate, which is really, as a policeman, your most valuable skill is communication, not, uh, not your uh, riot shield. Unpacking the Solomon Islands China Security Pact, you've been listening to a discussion from the Lowy Institute with Graham Smith and James Batley from the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the ANU. Dorothy Wickham a veteran Pacific journalist and broadcaster, and Lowy host, 
Jonathan Pryke. China's ambition to extend its global reach is also testing our allies in North Asia. With three nuclear-armed states on its doorstep, Japan is concerned with more immediate conflicts over the South China Sea and the future of Taiwan. In Perth recently for the annual leaders' meeting, Japan's Prime Minister talked about the need for peace while boosting energy and security ties with Australia. Japan is committed to a free and open Indo-Pacific, but how can it be achieved? Foreign Affairs Specialist Associate Professor Stephen Nagy is speaking to Matt Smith from Asia Rising. Free and open Indo-Pacific, that is a concept Japan can kind of claim origin of? Absolutely. Prime Minister Abe initially put this idea forward back in 2005 when he visited the Indian Parliament, giving a speech about the confluence of the two seas, of the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean. And from that period onward, the Japanese government really started to think about how they could inculcate more stability in the region, Mm. how they could uh, embed Japan into the region's political economy, but also ensure that as it develops, as institutions develop, that the rules-based, transparent, and in many ways uh, suit the interests of Japan, and it's the post-World War II order that has brought Japan prosperity, but also bring China into a more rules-based, I think, institutionally limited sense of how it engages within the region. And I think that's really, really critical, uh, Mm. especially as we watch countries like Russia invade Ukraine, but also look at how China's trying to revise the regional order. that revision would come at the expense of other countries, including Japan. Yeah. And uh, this is why Japan focuses on this idea of free and open. Okay, so it's, it's very important then that Japan gets buy-in, not just from its its allies and partners in the region and beyond, but also that you know there's acknowledgement of the concept and the core beliefs of it from those that they would consider their rivals. Well, what we see with this idea of free and open Indo-Pacific or Indo-Pacific um, vision, strategy, guidelines is that um, most countries that have a similar approach are thinking about the importance of ensuring this region continues to develop with a certain prescribed set of rules that ensure that trade, ensure that infrastructure and connectivity, and I think as well as conflict or disagreement is arbitrated by rules. And that's really important. I think countries like Japan or Australia or Canada, where I'm from, are really concerned about large countries, in particular China, using their power Mm -hmm. in a Machiavellian sense of might of right approach to dealing with international disputes. And of course, a very, very large country has enormous resources that they can bring to bear on smaller countries like Japan and Australia. And from this standpoint, again, uh, Japan is trying to curry the favor of many like-minded countries to support more rules-based institutional approach to how we uh, engage in the Indo-Pacific region. So Japan's military in the form of a defence force is one of the most powerful in the world, and we've seen incremental shifts to enhance its capabilities, Uh, for example, abandoning the ban on arms exports. How much of a line are they trying to push between offence and defence? And and here as well, I, I think it's quite relevant that former prime ministers have been subtly talking up things like nuclear capabilities, which is yet another bench that I never thought Japan would entertain sitting on. Your point is really interesting, but I think if we look at Japan's military expenditures or its self-defense expenditures since 1990, Mm. they have really fluctuated between about 46 billion U.S. dollars and 
about 49 to 50 US billion dollars. We haven't really seen a, a dramatic shift. And the comparison is looking at, for example, China, mm. uh, 10% year on year increase in military budgets, real rapid expansion in its naval fleet. By some estimates, the Chinese are replacing or creating a, a French naval fleet every year. Uh, Japan hasn't been there. So I think this is a one way to look at Japan's incremental change in its self-defense posture within the region. Second is looking at it through Article 9. The kinds of actions that the self-defense forces engage in um, really have to be interpreted through Article 9. So whether it's dealing with a Chinese fisherman in the Senkaku Islands or pushing back against gray zone operations, the self-defense forces are really trained to first think about does our behavior and our choices fall in line with Article 9? Mm. And in that sense, they're really hemmed in what they can do with their current self-defense forces. So just a, a bit of backstory, yeah. Article 9 is... Article 9 is part of the post-World II constitution in which Japan really gave up the right to use military force as an instrument of foreign policy. Mm. And that's why we call it a self-defense force rather than a military. Although, as you mentioned, by most accounts, it's the third most powerful self-defense force or military force on the planet. Yeah, yeah. But I want to step back to the point that you mentioned, some politicians bringing up the idea of uh, at least acquiring a nuclear deterrent. And this was something that came up just recently where former Prime Minister Abe talked about this. And the reaction by the public was no. And the reaction by the current Prime Minister, Prime Minister Kishida Fumio, who hails from Hiroshima, the f first city that was bombed by the first atomic bomb, yeah. said absolutely no, we're not considering shifting our position. So I think that when we look at the leadership level and we look at Article 9 and we look at the procurement of, of Japanese self-defense capacities, um, really their position within the region hasn't substantially changed over the past 20 years. And uh, I don't see the public having the appetite for a fundamental shift in their security policy and changing Article 9 in the next 10 years. Hmm. So it seems like there's that line that you think is just an, a no-go area. That's right. Their post-World War II identity is really linked to being the first victims of atomic weaponry yeah. and that they have a strong inclination towards pacifism. And I think this is broadly shared in the public, but also by most politicians. Mm -hmm. So not going over that line uh, really limits what you can do as far as nuclear deterrence goes when you've got uh, North Korea doing weapon tests, you've got other countries in the region, you've got uh, Russia being militaristic, not towards Japan, but definitely within striking distance, I guess, if they wanted to be inclined that way. So Matt, this really brings up a, a nuanced argument. When we're thinking about North Korea, you know, the question is, does a nuclear deterrent deter the North Koreans from their actions? And I think at this particular stage, the Japanese understand that um, anti-missile, uh, ballistic missile defense is the direction they would like to go. Mm. I think they're rethinking how they can uh, push back in, against North Korea in terms of preemptive strike capability. But that's a challenge. Yeah. But what's happened with Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the inability of NATO really to do much to push back against Russia, um, from the Japanese point of view, is that the key difference between pushing back against Russia and maybe pushing back against a non-nuclear state, of course, is nuclear weapons. And I think this is where the initial discussions about some kind of nuclear deterrent may be uh, useful in thinking about not so much Russia, but potentially China over um, Taiwan or over 
the Senkaku Islands. Mm-hmm. So where does the kind of middle line come between antagonising a rival and showing a strong front? Because if you take the example of things like a, the freedom of navigation efforts that they engage with with their allies, that could be taken as antagonising China, especially depending on the course that you plot. Well, here I'd like to be really clear. I think Japan doesn't have a zero-sum approach towards China. Mm. Uh, Last year, it did $210 billion in trade, $210 billion of trade. And this is despite um, record unfavorable ratings of China in Japan. So that economic relationship is critically important to Japan's sustainable economic future, and it doesn't want to cross that line. So how Japan is trying to deal with the security issues within the region, of course, is bolstering the U.S.-Japan alliance. That is really critical. Building new partnerships, such as the Reciprocal Access Agreement with Australia that was signed at the end of December 2021. And here uh, it allows for Australia and Japan to train in each other's countries and build a more interoperability of their forces. And the third layer is what we call strategic partnerships, is that Japan's investing in building the capabilities of other countries so that they can provide maritime domain awareness activities and capabilities to the region, help build their Coast Guard vessels. And lastly, I think Japan's approach is really building a a multi-layered, multilateral set of cooperative relationships within the region. Mm. And here we see things like the Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership with Australia, of course. Uh, We have the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which also includes Australia. Um, But we also have partnerships with Europe, the uh, Japan-EU-EPA Economic Partnership Agreement, as well as another agreement that focuses on infrastructure. So Japan is looking at its security through this multi-layer process that really prioritizes multilateral cooperation as the key, I guess, aspect of its deterrence capabilities towards China. Mm. I know that in Australia there are efforts to decouple to some extent, uh, economic reliance on the relationship with China. Is there the same kind of engines at work in Japan with how they're approaching their economy? I know, know you just said that there's diversifying and other options uh, with allies and partners in the region. But the fact of the matter is that there is a lot of economic reliance on China. So the Japanese don't use the word decoupling, and I think most countries don't really think about the word decoupling, but it's definitely selective diversification of specific supply chains. You know, this was, of course, magnified and accelerated by the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. You know, it started in Wuhan, and Wuhan is the home to uh, many huge industries, uh, automobile industries, pharmaceutical industries, and others. And the Chinese approach, of course, was to shut down the province where it, it initially started, and this affected supply chains. And the take-home lesson, I think, from Japan and other countries is that we need to selectively diversify our supply chains within China and outside China so that we have many hubs that can pick up the slack in case there's another black swan event like COVID-19 or there's the geopolitical problems that, of course, Australia has faced after calls for an international investigation of the origins of COVID-19 or after Japan nationalized the Senkaku Islands back in 2012. And and that was followed by a lot of vandalism and, and damage to Japanese businesses in mainland China. So we're not talking about decoupling. We're talking about a selective diversification of specific industries to make countries more resilient. Let's talk about Taiwan. Taiwan is great for Japan in some ways, I see it as, because that is a target that is not Japan. How does it, I imagine, lend support to Taiwan without lending support to Taiwan? 
So this is really interesting. And what we've seen over the past year is messaging at the unilateral level, bilateral level, and multilateral level for supporting what I call a status quo across the Taiwan Straits. And the status quo across the Taiwan Straits is basically Taiwan does not declare independence unilaterally, and China doesn't engage in a forced reunification of Taiwan. We saw Prime Minister Abe, uh, former Prime Minister Abe, back in December, talk about uh, a Taiwan contingency is a Japan contingency. And basically what he was saying that forced reunification with Taiwan would be messy. Mm. It would disrupt sea lines of communication. That's those critical arteries that transport imports and exports and energy resources into the second, third, and 10th largest economies in the world. And to give you a, a sense of the value, about $5 trillion U.S. dollars in goods goes through the South China Sea, East China Sea, and Taiwan Straits. That's yeah. an incredible amount. So Japan has been signaling to both Beijing and Taipei that they want the status quo. And this is why we see leaders say that we support peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits, uh, that a Taiwan contingency is a Japan contingency. And I think from that standpoint, Japan is being very much supporting Taiwan's position without supporting Taiwan's position, as you mentioned in the question. Mm. So security partnerships uh, with countries such as Australia, India, Southeast Asian nations, South Korea, and of course, the, the big one, the United States, is Japan getting out of them what they want I think that they're not all equivalent. Um, the U.S.-Japan alliance is, is the creme de la creme, right? It's, it, it's the cornerstone for Japan's security within the region, but yeah. not just Japan's security, uh, also South Korea's, the Philippines, Singapore's, and others. So that is really the top level. And then we go into uh, agreements like the reciprocal access agreement between Australia and Japan, and that represents another, I think, really fortified self-defense agreement. It's not an offensive agreement, right? It's that if something happens to Japan, Australia now will, I think, be required to come in and help Japan deal with whatever the security issue is. Mm. The strategic partnerships, as I mentioned, is more about building the capacities of other states so that they can deal with their security challenges unilaterally. So uh, Japan's providing Coast Guard vessels to countries like the Philippines and Vietnam and Malaysia. The next layer is the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which you've probably heard about. This is really transformed, I think, from a primarily maritime security arrangement to one about providing public goods to the region. So they've really shifted their focus away from security cooperation to talking about technology supply chains, the provision of vaccines to emerging countries, to infrastructure and connectivity, and some aspect of security cooperation. So that's another aspect of how Japan is viewing security through the region, through these minilateral relationships like the Quad. This should be understood as kind of a multi-layered approach to dealing with the security challenges within the region, mm. while at the same time continue to strengthen their economic ties with Beijing in very selective ways. Associate Professor Stephen Nagi from the International Christian University in Tokyo, speaking to Matt Smith from Latrobe, Asia. That's it for this Big Ideas. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.